Welcome to Big Time Dicks, the show where we take a closer look at the laws and lawmakers fucking up your life. I'm Joanna Rothkopf, Managing Editor at Jezebel. And I'm Prachi Gupta, Senior Reporter at Jezebel. Before we start the show, we need to plug our live event in Brooklyn, New York, New York. It's called Six Months Deep with Big Time Dicks. And we're going to look back at Donald Trump's first six months in office. And it's happening next week, June 28th, 7.30 p.m. Sharp. Please be there. You got to be there before 7.30. It starts at 7.30. You got to be there like 7, 7.15. A giant dick is going to throw you out if you arrive at 7.31. The doors are just going to be locked. Just going to say. Our lineup is excellent, if I do say so myself. Uh, We have immigration activist Erica Andiola, who was a former press secretary for Latino outreach for the Bernie Sanders campaign and now works as the political director for Our Revolution. We have comedian Aperna Nancherla, who's very funny. I said that in the most serious way, but she is very funny. And she's a former late night with Seth Meyers writer and has written about how difficult it is to write comedy under the Trump administration. And our third and final guest is Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! It's going to be so good. There's going to be drinks. There's going to be postcards to send to your Congress people. There's going to be hanging out. There's going to be us. I mean, don't miss it. We have limited tickets left. To get your ticket, they're free. Go to the Bell House website, bellhouseny.com, and we're on the calendar. But let's go into this week. This week, Jared Kushner gave a speech and we got to hear it. Now, some of you who listen to this podcast may remember that we already played Jared Kushner's voice and it sounds like a young teen singing an aria, but this is actually his voice. It was even more surprising than I thought it would be. We have challenged ourselves to pursue change that will provide utility to Americans far beyond our tenure here. So Jared Kushner, he has a voice. He sounds like a 12-year-old doing a bar mitzvah in New Jersey. It's a voice I'm very familiar with, yet still made me laugh and laugh. Coming out of that adult body. He is like you stretched out a bar mitzvah boy in a stretcher. That is actually a really great description, Joanna. <laughs> literally what he is. This week, we're talking to Curry Cook, director of the Youth in Out-of-Home Care Project and Council at the National Headquarters Office of Lambda Legal, We're talking to him about Texas Bill HB 3895, an anti-LGBT bill in Texas that recently was signed into law. It absolutely assumes what is the inherent problem with these, which is it's not about faith. It's about particular people and their particular ideology. But first, our weekend weenies. Our first weenie is Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell and his gang of like a dozen or so Senate Republicans have been working in the dark drafting this Obamacare repeal bill that will definitely hurt and cut off millions of Americans from health care. And they have not until this week released it to the public for any sort of viewing or discussion. And this is what Mitch McConnell had to say about his bill. Uh, I think we'll have ample opportunity to read and amend the bill. Will it be more than 10 hours? That's my I think we'll have ample opportunity to read and amend the bill. I rest my case. So Mitch McConnell won't promise more than 10 hours of debate on this bill that is definitely going to affect every single person in America. And they're trying to rush it through. And suddenly Americans are going to wake up on July 5th and have basically <laughs> no health care. I get doing this with like 
something that doesn't matter, like, oh, you're supposed to do a slideshow for work and then you didn't. And so you're just going to like send it to the client, whatever. I don't know how like clients or slideshows work for work. I don't, I've never done that before. But something that you like actually have to deal with the fallout of, like that's actually going to be a policy that somebody's going to have to put into action. And what if it literally, not not what if it's completely discriminatory and bad for poor people and is going to kill lots of people, but also what if it doesn't work? What if there are million errors in it? Just like, don't you want to be sure that the thing you're passing is going to work? Am I crazy? You might be. Our next weenie is Jill Stein. She is getting attention because she's a fucking idiot who needs to move to a cabin and stop speaking to reporters. She said to Politico, there are differences between Clinton and Trump, no doubt, but they're not different enough to save your life, to save your job, to save the planet. We deserve more than two lethal choices. What is she talking about there? Like, actually... They are enough to save millions of people. <laughs> is she talking about like all the victims like, of hate crimes who have already been injured or killed under the Trump administration? Is that who she's talking about? Is she talking about the millions of women who are terrified about losing birth control and can't have abortions? Great questions. Clearly, she's not thinking about them. She's thinking about how she didn't screw up an election. She was just standing up for the earth and for real liberalism and for real progressive values. I can't deal with her. And then in the same article, the Green Party's Michigan chairwoman, the Green Party, <laughs> she said, <laughs> she said, in some ways, Trump is one of the best things to happen to this country because look at how many people are getting off their posteriors. So part of me is giggling. Giggling. <laughs> giggling. Wow. So, I'm so shocked. I mean, these are white women who like aren't being affected by these policies who are like, y'all are crying out. Ugh, I can't tell who's worse, Jill Stein or this next, our next weenie, Karen Handel, who is really technically the weenie is not her, but everybody who voted for her in Georgia's sixth congressional district. So Karen Handel is now a congresswoman representing Georgia's sixth congressional district. Congrats, Georgia. She is a former secretary of state there and former executive at the Susan G. Komen Foundation who famously tried to pull funds for breast cancer screening from Planned Parenthood. Um, She also opposes adoption by same-sex couples and recently said this about minimum wage. I do not support a livable wage. What I support is making sure that we have an economy that is is robust with low taxes and less regulation so that those small businesses that would be dramatically hurt if you impose higher minimum wages on them are able to do what they do best, grow jobs and create good paying jobs for people in the 6th District. So shout out to Karen Handel, a new weenie on our list, and to everybody who voted for her in Georgia's 6th Congressional District. Now for our dick of the week. We had a lot of dicks to choose from. This week has been kind of terrible. I mean, this week has been terrible. It's been 
consistently upsetting. It's been violent. There's been a, a lot of hate crimes this week. I mean, there, there are so many hate crimes every week under this administration, but... Yeah. This week has been particularly grotesque. Um, but it's pride, so we're focusing on a shitty bill that discriminates against LGBT people. We're focusing on Texas HB 3859, which Texas Governor Greg Abbott signed into law last week. But first, let's do some history. June is Gay Pride Month, and that marks the anniversary of the 1969 Stonewall Riots in Manhattan. Um, They happened on June 28th, and at the Stonewall Inn. So police had been targeting gay nightclubs and bars, and so they raided Stonewall Inn for operating without a liquor license that night, and they were trying to arrest people, but a riot erupted, and that led to protests that um, lasted several days. It's considered to be one of the most visible protests for gay rights in American history, and that really paved the way for a whole slew of LGBT civil rights groups in the coming years. And so that same month, now 46 years later, in 2015, as we all know, the Supreme Court passed a ruling that legalized same-sex marriage. This ruling will strengthen all of our communities by offering to all loving same-sex couples the dignity of marriage across this great land. So June is a really important month, and it appropriately celebrates gay pride. But the struggle for equal rights in the LGBT community is obviously very far from over. Um, We've seen the anti-trans bathroom bills. And just last year, also in June, the gay nightclub in Orlando, Pulse, became the site of the deadliest mass shooting in America. At least 50 people were killed. Most of their bodies are still inside the club. The shooting began after 2 o'clock this morning. So all over the country, we are continuing to see laws that strip rights away from the LGBT community, and they're far from having equal rights in America. So HB 3859, earlier this week, as I said, Governor Greg Abbott, a terrible man, signed it into law. And according to NBC News, this law would allow faith-based groups working in the Texas child welfare system to deny services, quote, under circumstances that conflict with the provider's sincerely held religious beliefs. As we know, religious freedom bills are always just freedom to discriminate against somebody specific or a group of specific people. So the bill's sponsor, Republican Representative James Frank, said on social media that the bill bans no one and is actually just a mechanism for the state to offer different providers to anybody who's denied the right to adopt a kid because of their sexual orientation. Like in many places in Texas, there are no alternative providers. So human rights campaign called the bill a patently discriminatory law, which allows child welfare organizations, including adoptive and foster care agencies, to turn away qualified Texans seeking care for a child in need. Um, And this includes all sorts of people, LGBTQ couples, interfaith couples, single people. There are all sorts of people. I mean, you can say, it's my religion. I don't believe these people would be good parents. And you don't have to allow them to adopt someone from your foster or from your adoption agency or your foster care agency. Um, So it also allows for taxpayer-funded agencies to refuse to provide services to children at the agency if they think the child is LGBT plus. 
not only is the first part horrible, but the second part is also horrible towards children, many of whom are struggling with their sexual orientation or gender identity. us is Curry Cook, the director of the Youth in Out-of-Home Care Project and counsel at the national headquarters of Lambda Legal. Thank you so much for being here. Sure. Thank you so much for having me. So what's the history behind HB 3859? Um, This isn't the first time that foster homes have fought to discriminate against children and adoptive parents. Right. I mean, I think we have to look at um, Texas HB 3859 kind of in the context of the broader um, national debate going on and sort of push against uh, religious freedom being used as a way to discriminate against people. So within the foster care system, there's a long history of faith-based providers stepping up and caring for children, which broadly speaking is an awesome thing, right? I mean, people of faith are saying, I'm really here to sort of look out for kids and help kids, and, and that's fantastic. But unfortunately, we've also seen some of those organizations use that as an opportunity to receive government dollars to proselytize for young people that are placed in their care. And that's what's happening in Texas, right? They have taken an opportunity to pass a law that allows these child placing agencies or basically the contract agencies that are providing care for kids on behalf of the state and paid for with a combination of state and federal dollars to use that opportunity to push their religion and their religious values, not only on the children that they're caring for, but also to turn away people that don't comport with their particular ideology. And you've worked a lot with foster children and foster homes. What have you seen like this before? Yeah, just so everyone knows, my background prior to joining Lambda Legal, um, I've been an attorney for children in foster care, delinquency cases, all kinds of family court cases my entire career. And now at Lambda with the Youth and Out-of-Home Care Project, I advocate for LGBTQ plus young people and young people living with HIV that are involved in our nation's foster care systems. And so not only in my role at Lambda, but prior, um, we know that for kids that come into foster care, right, it, it is an absolute complete upheaval of their lives. They're removed from their parents after experiencing abuse or neglect or being abandoned. And then they're basically, if they can't be with, with family members or kin or people that they know, they're placed in foster care with people that are strangers. And so imagine your whole life completely uprooted and then placed with people that you don't know. So that has a lot of challenges, and one of them is just negotiating whatever that family's particular life is, and part of that can be their religious beliefs. And it has, at least historically, been a really strong understanding amongst everyone in the system that once you're placed in those homes, you have a right to be free from religion or to practice your religion and cannot be forced to go to the church of the foster parents that you're with or forced to subscribe to their particular values, right? They're there to care for you as a substitute for your parents who aren't able to do it at that moment and on behalf of the state. Right? So I've had numbers of a uh, number of clients over the years who have really had to navigate this. Like, I don't really want to go to that church. You know, that's not what I believe. And um, But also having to struggle with, but I want to be a part of this family. I, I want to fit in. I know that there may not be any place else for me to go. So 
what do I do in this situation? Do I stand up for what I believe in? Or am I going to just sort of go along to get along in this circumstance? And for LGBTQ youth, that has been a particular struggle um, because many young people, when they're placed in homes, they don't know, you know what their foster parents or the people that are working with them think about LGBT people. So they have to navigate a whole other array of challenges around deciding whether to come out, be themselves, you know, say how they feel about um, LGBT rights or themselves in, in the backdrop of foster care. So religious freedom is extremely broad. Like who all is affected by this? The way that 3859 um, is phrased um, is basically that you can't use this to discriminate on the basis of, of race, at least is listed as protected there. So in theory, um, they're carving out that you shouldn't be able to discriminate based on that factor, right? But notably, <laughs> sexual orientation, gender identity, religion are left out. So, um, and when you're talking about sincerely held religious beliefs, right, that can encompass a lot of things that sort of border on, right, morality. And so if I think that you as a foster parent have been divorced, right, and so therefore you're not moral or that's against our religion, right, I could turn you away on that regard. Or if you're an unmarried couple, say you're living in sin as an unmarried couple, so you're not suitable to be parents. Um, if you obviously are a person of a different faith, besides the particular ideology of that foster care agency, then I could turn you away. So it's not just about LGBT people for sure. Um, and also, right, we think about LGBT people are part of all kinds of faith-based, you know, faith organizations, spirituality, um, right, backgrounds and systems of belief. So as are people of different faiths. So I think it's important just as we try to do with all of our work to think about this through an intersectional lens and how it impacts people really broadly speaking. So how specifically are LGBT youth affected by this? I just don't really intellectually understand, like, oh, this child might be gay. I don't want to care for them. Or what What happens? Sure. So uh, we don't have a lot of um, fantastic data about how many LGBTQ youth are in foster care systems. We do have some. So one study out of Los Angeles is, is notable. It, it found that around 20% of young people in the foster care system in Los Angeles County are LGBT identified. And almost 6% of that number transgender. Right. And so that's a big disproportionate number to the estimates in general population. Right. So we have an overrepresentation in the system because of societal factors, um, rejection by families, stigma, prejudice, all of that. Right? So we have about 20% of the foster care system that are LGBT youth. So if you come into care, generally it's a, a county caseworker or a state caseworker that's investigating your circumstances as a court has made a determination after the agency's removed you that there's reason to believe you've been abused or neglected. And then you sort of look to placement, right? Where are you going to live if you can't be, you know, with, with your parents? So that's when these contract agencies in some places that are generally in a lot of places called child placing agencies, that's where they come in. Right. So there then this, the, the county or state caseworker is going to say, I need you to find this child a home and I need you to make sure that they get the services that they need to meet our legal obligations to be responsible for their safety, their permanency and their well-being. Right? So that's where the concern for LGBT young people comes in. 
if they are then supposed to be served in the area where they live by one of these contract agencies and that agency says, whoa, like you're a trans kid, like we don't do that. Like we don't believe trans people exist. So you can come here, but we're only going to see you as the sex that you were assigned at birth. Okay. Right? Yeah. So, you know, so you could, they could either say, no, we're not going to serve you or we'll serve you, but you have to subscribe to our set mm-hmm. of beliefs, Right. Um, so then if a young person is turned away, the question is, well, where do they go, right? So if you operate, as a big concern of ours is in Texas, in, say, northwest Texas or far west Texas, and you're the only game in town in terms of a child placing agency, where do you go? Are you sent 400 miles away to an agency that will take you in Dallas? You know, and then what happens to you in terms of visiting your parents, you know, removed from your community, you know? leaving your friends, all of those sort of implications. Are you sent 400 miles away? Is that what happens? Or like, you I can mean, be, right? that one I of mean, the you, can, you can be. And, and this is, I think, something that's important, too, to think of as a backdrop, which is, um, by and large, these foster care systems don't function very well for anybody, right? They're really problematic. And in fact, Texas is already in the middle of defending a lawsuit filed by children's rights. And uh, significantly, that lawsuit, the judge found that the kids who were lingering in care, so kids that had not been able to find a permanent home for them, had been placed in like group homes and other congregate care settings and were being harmed there, like physically and emotionally harmed to the point of her finding that their system was unconstitutional, right? Because it violated those young people's right to safety. So you have that as the backdrop in Texas. And then we have this law, which actually could reduce the number of people who step up to be homes for kids in foster care. So it's exact opposite (laughs) from a public policy perspective of what we should be encouraging. It's absurd that this is the solution they came up with to like reform the foster care system. (laughs) Right. (laughs) It is. And and also I think what's really unfortunate is that um, proponents of this measure are also pitting um, people of faith against the system so what I mean by that is they're sort of saying, oh, well, these you know, protections for people's civil liberties and protections against discrimination on the basis of religion, sexual orientation, gender identity are pushing out people of faith. And that couldn't be further from the truth, right? It, it absolutely assumes what is the inherent problem with these, which is it's not about faith. It's about particular people and their particular ideology, right? <laughs> because we know that there are awesome faith-based providers around the country who serve LGBT youth and families and people of all faiths appropriately. And those people just get completely lost in the shuffle and and their proponents act like those faiths and those people don't exist, right? Because they're not their faith or their ideology. Um, And so, you know, that's something that we and others are really trying to demonstrate, right? That this isn't like pitting the system against people of faith. That is a false narrative. So how does what's happening in Texas right now play into what we're seeing on the federal level and the changes with the Trump administration? Definitely connected and really concerning in terms of what's happening on the federal level with the Trump administration for two reasons, um, two main reasons. One is, I think you all may be familiar that um, our member, uh, Scott Shadis, our HIV project director, who is a member of the 
President's Advisory Council on HIV and AIDS, and five other members recently resigned out of concern that the Trump administration was doing nothing and doesn't care about people living with HIV. And obviously that's connected with the ACA repeal and the risk to people with HIV. How that's connected to the foster care system is we know that the people most at risk um, for contracting new um, uh, HIV infections or, um, or becoming HIV positive are um, young people of color who are in the age of sort of 18 to 25 range and younger, right? Youth of color are dramatically overrepresented in the foster care system, as well as we discussed earlier, LGBTQ youth, right? So if you think about like those young people, right, this rollback of protections and, and thinking about addressing HIV really impacts kids in the foster care system as well. So that's one. Two, we've seen the Trump administration rolling back uh, efforts to enforce civil rights. So if you are a young person or a family and you've been discriminated in the context of the child welfare system, the people that you would complain to is the Office of Civil Rights within the Health and Human Services right, Division of the government. So if you're turning to them and they're not interested in whether you've been discriminated on behalf, on account of your sexual orientation or gender identity, or they've now just, well, we're, we're downsizing. So, oh, sorry, we don't have anybody to address Nobody your complaint. answers the phone. Nobody answers the phone. Yeah. Nobody responds to your complaint, right? Well then, so we've got these great federal protections now, but if we're in a situation and we have the fox guarding the hen house, or there's just no one guarding the hen house, well then, where does that leave you? One thing that we haven't talked about yet um, is conversion therapy, but that's, from my understanding of the law, that's something that agencies could now force a child or a young adult to go through for this, for placement. It's a big concern, and I think, it too, it's important to understand kind of the context of what happens within the foster care system, because when some people think of, of quote, conversion therapy, right? They think of being sent to this particular place where someone's, you know, giving you this awful stuff or electroshock. They like those awful things, which do happen and have happened historically. Um, but what we see in the foster care system at times is being placed in a group home that is faith-based. So you have your counselor at the group home or you have your group home staff that are telling you that it, it's that God doesn't approve of gays or trans people, right, or um, praying over you or you know, we were in contact with one uh, transgender boy um, who was in foster care in the South who came into foster care because of rejection by his family and ended up in a psychiatric hospital because of engaging in self-harm. So he got out and was actually referred to by the state to a counselor for him and his family um, that was an approved contractor by the state who took his mom aside and said, you know, I'm giving you um, these Bible verses to pray over him in his sleep to help get the trans out of his body, right? So this kind of stuff happens, right? And the concern is that these sort of laws would give these contract agencies um, sort of license to engage in that sort of behavior, you know, with impunity. Right? So theoretically, legally, 
a contractor approved by the state could be giving somebody Bible verses as like the treatment for them. Well, goodbye, separation of church and state. Exactly. And also science. Right. And And, I mean, you know, interestingly, the the proponents of this have sort of said, well, well, of course, that's not what we're talking about. (laughs) Because I I think they, you know, notably, you'll, you'll see as you sort of look at their reasons for justifying this, that largely it focuses on same sex parents and not wanting to license same-sex parents Mm -hmm. as adoptive parents, right? Right. Which is an issue that, you know, I hope we also talk about because that's a major problem as well. What they don't talk about is LGBT youth because I think this is just my (laughs) speculation, right? But I think that they know that saying to the public, we want these type of laws because we want to, you know, try to convert LGBT youth or tell them that what they're doing is, um, you know, is immoral or bad or um, against God is not really palatable with the general public in the same way that, oh, we're just, we're just sending same-sex couples elsewhere, right? I mean, that's like, oh, oh, okay, well, that doesn't sound so bad, (laughs) right? Yeah. Um, Well, but so with the passage of this law and about the rights of same-sex couples to adopt from an equal variety of places that heterosexual couples can adopt from or whatever from these religious places, um, are you seeing or are you anticipating a spread of these laws into other states or across the country? Yes, I'm afraid so. I mean, as as I mentioned earlier, it is useful, I think, to think about the, the the backdrop of all of this, which, of course, is you know marriage equality as a piece of it and LGBT civil rights generally. So historically in the foster care system, many agencies, both like the state agency that runs these systems or counties or their contract agencies, have preferred married couples over unmarried couples as foster and adoptive parents. And the theory behind that, which does have you know, some small bit of evidence in social science, which that is, in theory, married couples are more stable, right? And, of course, we want stable homes for kids, right? So they were able to use that against LGBT people, same-sex couples in particular, right, when you weren't allowed to get married in places, to say, oh, it's not about the fact that you're a same-sex couple. It's just you're not married. Well, of course, they couldn't get married. Yeah. So, <laughs> And so as we saw, right, the advance state by state of, you know, through the courts largely of, of the advance of marriage equality and then ultimately with the Obergefell ruling, marriage equality nationwide, then we saw states, oh, wait a minute. You know, now we're not going to have that as a way to <laughs> to discriminate against. We're going to have to treat married couples the same. That doesn't mean states haven't been fighting that in various ways in some states, right? But theoretically, anyway, you know, for couples who were married and seeking to be foster parents, Obergefell should have eliminated that as a barrier, right? So since that was gone, what do we do now? We can pass these religious exemption bills that will allow us to accomplish the same thing. So Greg Abbott signed this into law. What are you, what is your organization doing just like next? What what do you do now? Right, right. Well, I mean, we're certainly contemplating litigation. The law goes into effect in September, um, right? So we're, you know, talking to folks, figuring things out, you know, preparing and and are looking to see once this law goes into effect, how, how how is it impacting people, right? What is it actually going to look like when it happens? Um, 
I mean, we know one thing now for sure without it even taking effect, which is a major concern, is that these type of laws have an enormous chilling effect on anyone who doesn't sort of comport with the particular ideology of some of these agencies. So, for example, because of, of historical discrimination and, and laws that used to exist, like banning LGBT people from being foster or adoptive parents, LGBT people have historically been very cautious about stepping forward to be foster parents. They, they didn't know if they could or should or if they'd be allowed to. And now they're hearing this message. So it's so hard to think about being a foster parent for a lot of obvious reasons. It's a tough job. And if you have this, well, I might step forward and have somebody tell me I'm not okay or I'm not worthy or I'm not a good parent. Like, are you really going to step forward and take that risk? Maybe not. Probably not. And if you're an LGBT young person and you're struggling with your identity or you're out to some people and not others, are you going to take that risk to come out to anybody knowing that you may be turned away or harmed? And that isolation is exactly what contributes to high incidences of, of STIs, of depression, of suicidal ideation, all these harms that have for far too long been associated with LGBT young people and caused them to be off the charts and risks. And this already contributes to that. Right? And so we're very, very concerned about the overall effect on, on LGBT youth and, and families just by the existence of this law. And then we're going to be monitoring closely like what happens when it goes into effect. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This is so evil. I feel upset, but I'm glad you are doing the work that you're doing. Thank you. Well, thank you for taking time to talk about this. I think it's important, too, to make sure that the, the general public really knows about about these laws and how they break down because the child welfare system, right, for most people, thankfully, it's just this enigma, right? You haven't been involved, you know, you don't know anything about it. And I think that's why some proponents are using these as a mechanism because it is a bit of a mystery for a lot of people about like, what do these do? Like, how do they play out? Like, I don't get it. And that keeps the public from being in these fights as much as they have been against like, say, anti, you know, trans bathroom bills and other things, right? So we need the public, the general public to step in and like step up and say, no, this isn't acceptable in our state, just like these other anti-LGBT bills. Absolutely. But while discussions of, of, of what's happening at the executive level and with the legislature in Texas and other places um, is really, really concerning, I do want to, to make sure folks know that there has been a lot of amazing work going on on behalf of LGBT youth and families, um, including in places like Texas, right? Uh, Texas CASA, the court-appointed special advocates, um, right, are really committed. Like, they're the folks who advocate for kids in foster care. They're really committed to LGBT youth. We've done a lot of trainings in Texas for CPS workers and so many of like the workers and the people who work in these systems, they get it and they really want to help these young people and do better by them. So that's also going on. And I think we know that, that those things are ultimately going to carry the day. And hopefully these are just setbacks and not minor ones, but ones that we're going to push through because everything in social science, civil rights, all of that march forward supports, you know, treating these youth and families right. Thank you for that silver lining. <laughs> I think we could all use it. <laughs> sure. Definitely. 
every week. We do a segment at the end of the show about what we're doing that's not politics related because politics are like boring and sad. And it's called How to Handle the Dicks. Prachi, how are you handling the dicks? Well, (laughs) so I think if you are a regular listener, you heard about last week my resolution to stop drinking alcohol. That lasted until the end of that day. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) you were at a bar and and she was like, I'm drinking. Well, well, to be fair, it was a work thing. Um, Yeah, so we found out that Emma Carmichael, the editor-in-chief of Jezebel, is stepping down uh, in July. And this was very sad news, like very bittersweet for all of us. And so we went to a bar and I was like, I can't be the only one not drinking. That would make me a bad coworker and bad employee. Oh, my God. Is exactly what I thought. No, <laughs> That I'm, is not I'm what you thought. That's not what I thought. I just, I wanted a damn drink. It was a nice day. <laughs> yeah. I was with, I was with friends. And like, I, want I was like, I'm going to drink. Thing. So... What I have decided, and I've definitely had drinks since then. I had a drink last night. I've just decided that I will never have, like, more than two drinks in one sitting. Tonight you're going to – you're going to – or tomorrow morning you're going to slack me and you're going to be like, I had six drinks last night. <laughs> it could happen. Um, I think no, so. No, but, but I'm just, like, learning to just, like <laughs> – I don't know. I don't want to say any of I this. want you to be healthy, but it also is so funny that you keep being like – I'm not drinking ever. One week later, I'm only having two drinks. I know. One week. It's, I'm, but this is what I do with, like, everything in my life. Like, one week later, you're going to be like, I'm only having seven drinks, but one night a week. <laughs> <laughs> this is what I do. Like, I create resolutions to be healthy, and I'm just always vacillating between, like, the extremes of them. I also started up Krav Maga again because guess what? Good my ankle's you. fully healed. I, oh, my god! So I'm back. Muzzle. Thank you. That rules. Yeah. Um, me? Cut my own bangs this week. That was a mistake. <laughs> what? Your bangs look great. I had no idea. They re- I'm really not good at it. Every time I hear something with me, I'm just, I'm not doing a how to handle the dicks. I'm just going to tell you a little bit about my bangs. Every time my bangs get to be a certain length, I'm like, I hate having bangs. I need to grow them out. But then instead of letting them grow out, I just cut them again. And then I like them a little bit better. But I feel like this time, I don't know. Ugh. Joanna, your bangs are my alcohol. You're right. Our how to handle the dicks this week are not keeping promises to ourselves. Anyway, that's it. Come to our show next week. <laughs> if you're in New York and friendly and want to hang out and have a good time. Rude and late people just don't. Rude don't and late bother. people don't bother. <laughs> Is that good? <laughs> yeah, that was great. Thank you so much for listening to Big Time Dicks, and thank you to our guest, Curry Cook, for joining us. This show is produced by Levi Sharp with editorial oversight by Kate Drees. Mandana Mofidi is our executive director of audio. We featured music by Stuart Wood and Aaron Leader, and the episode was mixed by Jamie Colazzo. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts so other people can find the show. You can also find us on Panoply, NPR One, or wherever you get your podcasts. Got a big time dick you want to tell us about? Send a voice note or email to bigtimedicks at jezebel.com or tweet at Jezebel using the hashtag bigtimedicks. We'll see you next Friday, and who knows what the world will look like then. <laughs>